a lot of these decisions that we're taking on would be like, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest. If you're going to go climb Mount Everest, what you want to do is you want to find the Sherpa who's done it the most times. And you want to connect to that individual so that they can help you and guide you. You don't want to say, I know exactly what I'm doing. I read two books and a documentary on TV and now I'm going to go do that. You can't, you can't do it on your own. You need to always be in a constant state of learning. You need to appreciate the, the lessons that are always happening to you. And you have to have that what I'll call cognitive awareness to understand this is a learning experience. I'm going to accept this information. I'm going to move forward. Welcome to the Miracle Academy. This is your host, Scotty Cooper, and this is where miracles are expected. Welcome to the Miracle Academy podcast. I'm your host, Scotty Cooper. Today we're in a little bit of a different setting. We're actually in San Diego with one of my mentors, Roy. Roy and I have known each other for a few years. We've become really good friends, and he's helped guide me in a lot of different things, and he's added a lot of value to my life, so I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you for asking me. Of course. So, um, you know, this is the Miracle Academy podcast, like I said, and we talk about a lot of miracles and a lot of really cool things and fun stuff. Roy is just chock full of a lot of stories and wisdom, and um, really... Nice way of calling me old. (laughs) Nice. But um, I'm just kind of excited to hear, like, kind of where where you started. And, like, I really like the story of how you became the expert in, like, women-owned businesses and, <laughs> and how you became the expert in different things. So I'd love to hear that story and, and how you've gotten to where you are now. Well, I think if you go all the way back to my, in fourth grade, Mrs. Roll made us read a book of Helen Keller. Helen Keller made an impact on me. And it said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. And from that point forward, I chose daring adventure. I chose things that other people didn't think were conventional. So as I went through and made my choices, what I learned is that you do make choices. Anthony Robbins, I think, put it in an encapsulated way where he said, if you don't like your life, make new choices. I've expanded that into some of the things I've done where we talk about decisions. You either make a decision by design, these are the things I'm purposely doing, or by default, since I didn't make those choices, these are the things that happened to me. Other people will call that living at effect or living at affect, but we all get to make those choices. So I was incredibly lucky, absolutely lucky, (laughs) that every time I made cognitive choices, those things where I'm going to go do this, things tended to work out. When I wasn't making cognitive choices, I was kind of like a sailboat without the sail up out in the middle of the ocean, getting battered by anything that happened to go by. So I made a choice to determine where I wanted to go, and then made commitments to get there. Some people will call them sacrifices. It's all on how you look at something, right? Perspective. Mm -hmm, Cool. So what were some of those choices that early on kind of shaped to where you went? (laughs) Well, um, probably the choice that really had my mom and dad a little bit irritated was in high school, based on my SAT scores, I got accepted to go to Brown. Brown and Ivy League school. At the time, I didn't really know about Ivy League. So I chose to go where the, uh, to a top ranked school for what I wanted to be, which was a teacher, but it all ha- also had the United States Olympic coach, Dr. Satya Yoshida, there for the 76 Olympic team, and that's what I wanted to do. So I went there. I made a choice, a cognitive choice. I didn't realize I'd be making a lifetime choice by learning judo from that person and doing those things and, and, and living a life dedicated to learning, but it was one of those design choices where Brown would have given me different opportunities. I'll never know what that choice would, would have been mm-hmm. because I didn't take it. So... You know, the question you asked earlier, which is, how did I become known as the expert of a variety of things? It's a great story. I wrote a book, <laughs> met an editor of Success Magazine. Success Magazine said, wow, we have, we have a problem. You can solve the problem. We're going to make you the America's leading authority on franchising. So for four years, I led a team of researchers that ranked the top 100 franchises in North America. I became a contributing editor, and that gave me other opportunities. Inc. Magazine came to me, looked at my book and said, wow, we're going to make this book of the year type thing. And they said, you know, we really want to go after some things, so we're going to make you America's leading authority on entrepreneurship. And I went, oh, that's great. I really appreciate that. And along the way, I was connected to the National Foundation for Women Business Owners, which at the time was the educational foundational arm of NAVO, the National Association of Women Business Owners. And I went and did a presentation there, and for some reason they really liked it, so they suddenly 
made me America's leading authority on women on business issues, <laughs> which is when a reporter called me. She said, why am I calling you? And I said, I don't know. Why are you calling me? She goes, well, I was told by the National Foundation of Women Business Owners that you're America's leading authority on women business issues. And I went, well, that's cool. So, And they put that in a newspaper. They put it in Investors Business Daily. So if other people are giving you those titles, just take them. Because <laughs> I have lots of stories that I'm not going to tell you what people have called me either. <laughs> so how do you see like you being able to make those cognitive decisions? How do you like teach someone like how to do that. For example, like what I'm thinking is maybe someone that isn't happy with their health and they're like, you know what, I want to get better. Mm -hmm. And like, how do you help them see like the right decisions to make to make that change in their yeah. life? I, I think I'll call it a linkage or an association strategy. Unfortunately for most people, the average person, that all the decision making that they learned in their life happened between the ages of six and nine. And if you look back at your life between six and nine and you realize that that has 80, 90% of the impact that you've ever had in your decision-making criteria, you're going to be a little bit worried about your ability to make decisions. Mm -hmm. So if you look at things that are similar, right? Oh, I want to be like that person, the character on television. So you begin to behave like that character on television. My daughter currently seems to be infatuated with English television and she walks around all day long talking like an English person. She's got a great accent. But she's, she's emulating, she's modeling, she's trying to get to those points. And I would say for adult learners especially, those people over the age of 19, that what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to find a coach, a mentor, someone who can guide them, right? We, we call them doctors, we call, we call them alternative healthcare professional learners. But you're going to have to find somebody who knows more than you do and has met these issues head on before. Mm -hmm. A lot of these decisions that we're taking on would be like, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest. If you're going to go climb Mount Everest, what you want to do is you want to find the Sherpa who's done it the most times. And you want to connect to that individual so that they can help you and guide you. You don't want to say, I know exactly what I'm doing. I read two books and a documentary on TV and now I'm going to go do that. You can't, you can't do it on your own. You need to always be in a constant state of learning. You need to appreciate the, the lessons that are always happening to you. And you have to have that what I'll call cognitive awareness to understand this is a learning experience. I'm going to accept this information. I'm going to move forward. And setbacks will happen. And as long as you say, okay, that setback happened, what can I learn from it? And then you can move forward. Two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. But as long as you're moving forward. But I would always say find an expert, sign some, someone you can trust, look for those things, and it will work. Mm -hmm. Now, don't Google it and expect that you're going to get the thing, you know, the greatest things. Well, Facebook is the world's, what, second largest search engine today. So people are always asking their friends. And, and I think Einstein said it best. He said, no one can solve the problem at the same level of thinking that created the problem. Mm -hmm. So if you're just hanging around with the people who are like you and doing those things, you're not going to get to that next level. You've got to find people who are at that next level and then emulate, model, <laughs> copy, steal from. There's a book called Steal Like an Artist, right? right. <laughs> and it's, it's just, you know, you, you, what you want to do is you want to get all that information together. But it's a choice. It's a choice to say, I'm not happy here. Mm -hmm. This is where I want to go. I'm going to have to get there. I made a choice coming here this morning from where I live, which is eight miles away to this location. I pushed Google. Google let me go down the freeway. Or I could make the cognitive choice to come up that beautiful area where I could see the boats and the planes and everything. I chose that. Mm -hmm. It may have taken a little bit longer, but it was a choice for me and my vitamin D in the soul as opposed to just getting here efficiently. And I think that if we understand that every day we have the ability to make a choice, mm -hmm. we understand that the choice is ours, that we live at effect, and that when something happens, we get to make a new choice. Yeah. I feel like that's really empowering because I feel like people that haven't realized that like you said they're kind of like that boat without the without the sail that is getting battered by whatever comes by whatever comes about yeah. Katy Perry wrote a song about it I can't remember it. I'm not going to sing it <laughs> but if, she says if you stand for nothing then you can stand for everything and you're just going to get torn apart and you really have to decide what you want to stand for what you want to accomplish and then work at that mm -hmm. and that's where people will always help you get to that point I'll give you a little hint from research. Never ask somebody for their opinion because their opinion is a lean back type of situation. But when you ask for their advice, it's a lean in type of situation. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to get to the next level, get advice from lots of people who have accomplished things. Please don't get advice from people who haven't accomplished things. Otherwise, it's, it seems to be a waste of time. But that it seems to just be common sense, but common sense is not common practice. 
And, you know, when I look at the people who have most impacted me, these people have accomplished greatness in sometimes a great number of industries and sometimes in just one. Yeah. So, but it, it's you know, a choice on who you're going to listen to. Mm-hmm. I like kind of what you said about having that mentor to to guide you to, to make those choices. And I feel that that's like, for us in Cooperstown, I feel like that's kind of where our office is, mm-hmm. right? It's like, yeah, you come to to get the care, but a lot of it's the education, and more so it's like, that's really the thing that guides them to be able to to get to the next level, mm-hmm. which is, I feel like, what, what you, you do, too, all the time. When I run a company, we create a corporate culture. There's a guy named Cialdini who wrote a book called Influence, which is one of my favorite books, then he wrote another book after Influence called Persuasion. They're both great books. If you haven't read them, please read them. In Influence, Cialdini said, no culture can exist, right, without trust. Mm-hmm. And no trust can exist without consistency. And so what you have to look at in culture and consistency is you have to create an environment where every single day people are encouraged to learn. And the organizations that I become the CEO of, we have three rules. There's only three rules. We're always talking about the three rules. Positive expectancy, brilliance, accomplishment. Those are my three rules. Every day, all day long, I ask somebody, positive expectancy, because problems are going to exist, right? We call them an opportunity, call it a challenge, and you figure out a way to, to solve it, to contribute to it, to get additional resources to move that forward. Brilliance. I expect brilliance out of people every single day, and I'm never disappointed. Never disappointed. An easy story on that. Um, a bunch of years ago, walking into an organization, a guy named Daryl. Daryl's our person who met everybody. If you were a customer coming in, he met you. If you were an employee coming in, he met you. If you were calling in for an employee, he gated your call because we had, this was a long time ago, it's not an automated phone system, but he got to talk to everybody. And I was like, Daryl, what, what have you done today that's brilliant? And he looked at me dead blank and I said, you got to make a great day for every single person who calls in because for you, it's one of a thousand calls, but for them, it's the one call in a thousand where you get to stand out and make a difference in their life. Puffed up, boom, asked for a raise. I was like, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) But what you want is you want to expect brilliance. And you want to expect accomplishment from people, not activity. What are you doing today? I'm going to do my files. I'm going to do this. Like, what are you going to accomplish? What are you going to get done that you can be proud of, that you can share with us? I know every day you're working. I know every day you're making decisions. I know that if we examine the decisions you've made, you had a really good reason for making that decision. Sometimes I don't know what it is. I can't get there from here. But I know that at that time when you made that decision, you made the best decision you could. And so I spent a lot of time with people talking to them about their decisions. And I don't want somebody to rationalize or justify their decision. I want somebody to evaluate their decision. And the ability to evaluate a decision is a completely different skill set than justifying a decision. When you justify a decision, you're trying to not be blamed, and you're trying to tell everybody why you made such a good idea. When you evaluate it, you're trying to assess how effective you were. Mm. And it's effectiveness that really sets people apart. Mm. Peter Drucker talks about the difference between efficiency and effectiveness. Efficiency is doing things right. Mm -hmm. Effectiveness is doing the right things. I want to live an effective life. Mm I want to live an effective life. In order to do that, every day I have to learn. Every day I have to, I have to look for opportunities mm-hmm. to increase my skill set. So you said the difference was like justifying a decision versus what was it? Evaluate. Evaluating. So how do you help someone learn how to do that? Because I feel like a lot of people might be stuck in the justify. At least that's what I've seen. I, I've tried to, the way I think of it is like being the observer and trying to observe and see, is that evaluator? How else do you help train people how to do that effectively? It's probably the hardest thing I have to do all day long. <laughs> because when people make decisions about their life, they really want to be right. They really want to have a good idea. Charles Garfinkel in 1987 wrote a book called Peak Performers. And in that book, he said, peak performers, those people who accomplish the greatest, when something happens, they don't fix blame. They don't uh, fix blame. Mm-hmm. They fix the problem. And there's a big difference. So when you're trying to, when you justify, you're, you're trying to absolve yourself and declare yourself to be free of blame and sin. So if you're doing that, you're not fixing the problem. You're not saying, what's the evaluative process? What could I have done better? Where can we learn? Where can we go? And 
in one of my books I wrote, and I have a six-step decision-making process where I give helpful things and things like that. But ultimately, it is the hardest thing to do for people to understand how to evaluate a decision versus how to justify. I know you had a good reason for making the decision because you made it, and I trust you, and I did it. But the bottom line is, did it work or didn't it work? Athletes teach us that all the time. They're constantly making decisions on their field of play in that moment to do things. Yeah. And sometimes you go, oh, that play didn't work. <laughs> and sometimes you go, wow, that was a touchdown. What's the difference? There's a million different differences. But at the end of the day, what they have to do is evaluate how they can do it better the next time, not why they did it right the first time. Got it. How can I build as opposed to re relive yeah. what I did? <laughs> I always expect things like that when well, I talk with you. <laughs> you asked the question, so it was a brilliant question. So you mentioned the, the, these stages of decision making. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of yeah? Okay, that? so when I when when you make a decision uh -huh. to to study decision making, mm -hmm. you are amazed to find out that the vast majority of decisions decision skill sets are learned between the ages of six and nine. Like I didn't think about that. Right. You also begin to do research, and um, there's a guy named Morris Massey who's a behavioral sociologist, and he wrote a, a series of books and papers of this, You Are Now What You Were When. And he examined how people grew up, where they grew up, and what they would be like today based on these wonderful things. And he said, after the age of 19, no one can make a significant change in their life. You are what you are, unless you have a significant emotional experience, and then you can make incredible change. And it's easy when somebody, you know, oh, that guy had a heart attack. Now he's a fitness nut, right? That's a significant emotional experience. So we can identify that. One person looks out in the sunrise and goes, wow, I'm never going to take drugs again. Well, how the hell was that significant? I don't know. So significance to each individual is different. So I don't know how to measure that in others. What I do know is, is that when somebody has a decision, and Tony Robbins is the best at this, he used to say 30 days. And he said 10 days. And now he says in an instant. You can make that change, that realization of how to change the world. How you do that is you find other people who have done it and then get to that next level of where they're going. And so when you're looking at the things that you're unhappy with in your life, you can just write them down. Because if you write it down, it becomes real. You can then look at it and you can say, by this point, at some point in the future, right? Now we're establishing what I want. Then you can examine all the things you're doing about why that's important to you, what you're going to do with it. You know, why is this important? It's great. And then you're going to get a plan of how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to determine who's going to help you get to that point. And then you're going to do a stage of when each of these things are going to be done. Mm -hmm. And if you just do that, what am I going to do? Understand why I'm doing it. Figure out how to do it. Who will help me get there? And when it's going to be done, you have the greatest strategic plan in the world. And when I'm asked to go into people's businesses, I understand that they're not clear on what they want to do. Not everybody understands why they're wanting to do it. Not everybody's trained on how to do it. They don't know who they can depend on, and they don't know when it's due by. And if you can just add little simple things, making it cognitive for them to say, I can do that, mm -hmm. then they can get there. There's this wonderful illustration where a person's got a ladder, mm -hmm. and they can reach to the sky. Unfortunately, every step of the ladder is 10 or 15 feet apart. Yeah, It doesn't do them any good because they can't really get to the next rung. Right. Whereas there's another ladder that can get just as high, but every rung is only a foot. And sometimes you can skip them and you can do stuff, but realistically you can make it there because you have a realistic chance to acquire the skills and the insights and the ideas of what's going to be necessary to get to the next level. One of the things that I was, I was kind of thinking about was how you mentioned, like, find someone that's done it before. Mm -hmm. What kind of advice would you give to someone that is in that stage of like, okay, I'm ready to do this. Like, I think I know a person I, wa I want to connect with. How would you recommend that they go about that? Like, how did you do it, or how would you teach another person to do that? I, I think what we have to be looking at is it goes back to a more fundamental, is that it's, it's that when you're ready to get those learnings, the universe provides you all kinds of opportunities to get to all kinds of people that you didn't know you had opportunity to. It's kind of like if I if I activate what's called your reticular activator today, and I say to you, you know what, I'm thinking about buying a white Toyota Corolla. Mm -hmm. On the way down here, you drove for two and a half, three hours. You didn't see any white Toyota Corollas. On the way home, if I'm telling you I'm going to go buy a white Toyota Corolla, you're going to see about a hundred of them. And why are you going to do that? Because you suddenly the universe is going to provide you that. Because 
the reptilian brain would say, I need food, right? It would have to do that. Why does a frog sitting on a lily pad suddenly gets a fry? It's because it knows it's going to need nourishment at those kinds of times. And your brain is incredibly powerful. So if you tell your brain what you want, mm -hmm. it's going to help you get to those points. And then you just have to be open to getting them in ways that maybe you didn't plan for. Mm -hmm. There's a great quote, and it says, you can always get your way if you have more than one way. <laughs> so you, and Google teaches you that every day. You can look at Google and think, this is where I am, this is where I want to go, and it shows you the main routes, and it shows you the alternative routes, and when you mess up, it says, recalculating. <laughs> Okay, so it's a great life lesson every day in your car if you're using Google Maps or Apple Maps or Waves or I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I'm not endorsing any of them, but you get the point, yeah. right? Is is there's two things that people have to know, right, in order to get what they're going. They have to know where they want to go. They have to know when they're starting, where they're starting. If you don't know those two things, you can't get anywhere. Yeah. And then along the way, there's lots of different ways to get you there. You just have to be okay with the fact that there's going to be lots of different ways to get there. My wife and I went to Kenya just recently, mm -hmm. and I took a car, you know, to the airport. I took an airplane somewhere, then I had to take a train inside there. I mean, there's planes, trains, and automobiles. It was all transportation because I had a clear starting point and a clear objective. If you don't have a clear starting point, you don't know where you are, uh -huh. and you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So getting that clarity, and once you understand where you're going and you understand the people who are there, and you just say, okay, if you believe in God, you say, God, help me get there. And you will be faced with all kinds of things in your life. You'll be going, oh, I never saw that before. This is wonderful. You will attract that in the universe. There's all kinds of books on attraction of the universe. Read them. I probably read a hundred of them. And please read. Please educate yourself. Please look at Gold Coast. Do a mentor box. Find other people. There are so many new learning ways today to get information. It's just incredible. Mm -hmm. And what I want you to understand, or what I like to understand, is that there's data, right? And I have a little model in my, some of my, you know, D is for data, right? And there's always a lot more data than there is information. So when you have all these data points, the only thing information is, is the organization of the data that exists. And then you can look at that and say, ah, with that information, what can I do? Now you're applying your own knowledge to that. Now you're saying, with that information, it's becoming like a gating criteria, um, kind of a funnel, right? And you're getting less of it. Now I'm applying my knowledge and there's more knowledge than there is intelligence. And then when you really get to know, you're really starting asking experts and you really start finding those people and you have intelligence, then and only then can you get wisdom. And in a world that has so much data, we have so little wisdom and it's because the criteria of what you need to do to get to those learning points is, is critical thinking. Mm -hmm. The way in which you're going to approach your life is a critical portion of it. How many lives do you have? One. One of my first jobs was selling health club memberships. And health, selling health club memberships, I was a phys ed major, I was a teacher, I was an athlete. I loved it. Mm -hmm. And when people would come in, they would say, I want to lose weight. I want to say, great. How many bodies? And they'd say, oh, I don't know if today's the day. I was like, great. How many bodies do you have? One. How many? You were only ever given one car for the rest of your entire life. Mm -hmm. What would you do for that car that... Because it's the only thing that, that you have the rest of your life. And they say, oh, I have to change the world. That's great. Okay. How many bodies do you have? How many minds do you have? What are you doing every day to improve each of those things? And some days you do a lot, and some days you don't. But the point forward is that you're always moving forward based on these decisions that you've made. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a formal decision, I'm going to go do this decision by design. Or, if you don't do things, it's a decision by default. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't exercise. Well, you could have. So... One of the things that um, that I really like that we've talked about before is um, the way that you <clears throat> find people that that kind of join your team, mm -hmm. and um, and I love to hear that that kind of model again, the way that you uh, you look at that. So well, I think that blew my mind the first time you told me. Well, you're going to have to give me some help because I don't remember the first time we had that conversation. So if I tell the wrong story, you can kick me under the table, but not hard. <laughs> I think that one of the things that when you're looking for people to join your team, mm -hmm. you're always looking for people to join your team. You're always looking at the attributes that people have. If you're in a restaurant and a waiter or a waitress comes up to you, you're looking at how do they interact with people. How, how can I make that person's a better day than if they'll make my day better? And what you're constantly looking for are people of like mind. And you have to be really clear on the values that your organization has. We, we in the organization I'm currently CEO, we have 
values clarification. We know what we stand for. We have a mission. We have a vision. We are clear about what we want to accomplish. And people like to join those kinds of things. We want to attract those types of people. And when they come in, what you're always looking for is you're always looking for ways to attract great people. Organizations, when you're driving that, you know, are filled with people, right? I have this little spiel about people, time, and money. Time is a constant, right? Money is a byproduct of people, so the only thing you should focus all day long on are your people. Mm -hmm. And so when you're focused on the people, you have tasks that need to be done, right? Tasks that need to be done, and I call those boxes. Mm -hmm. and then you have people who have lots more talent than, the, than they fill in the box, and those, those people evolve, and, they, and then you can give them bigger boxes. You can always grow those people. If you have a, a need in an organization and you try and fill it with somebody who doesn't have all the skills, you frustrate them and make yourself mad. And you talk about, oh, well, that's what training's for. No, that's not what training's for. Training is, is to give a person who joins your organization the technical skills to do the technical job for the job you want them to perform. Mm -hmm. Not that you, you have to train them to think or to behave or to dress or some of the things that you're faced with there. You want to hire somebody who's got a lot more potential and just needs technical skill training. And then they can grow and they can grow and they can grow. Mm -hmm. We have what we call the star chart. We use this for people, mm -hmm. we use this for customers, and we use this for vendors. Mm -hmm. I didn't make it up called the star chart, one of my clients did. It's, if you think of it about a star, five-sided star, you can have recruitment, orientation, training, education, retention, and that made up, and then the, the, the five points become a star. And every one of those things in an organization interrelates. What are we doing every day to recruit great people into our organization? People to work with us, customers, and vendors. And if you think multidimensionally, you begin to attract really great people. Um, if you then recruit those people, then orient those people to the way in which you want to interact with those people, they understand it, they become a part of it, they do things. You get recruited into a, a grocery store by the advertising and the pricing. You get oriented into, into a grocery store because many of them are set out the same way, right? They have an outside that does one certain thing and insides that do something else, and it's by design, right? They use heat maps. They do all kinds of things to make sure that they can get you to the various places. They put specials in different places. They use end caps for different parts, but they're going to manage you throughout. Then in the training, it's the ability to understand the technical needs for the job that you're currently doing. Education, we have an obligation to our employees to educate them to another whole level of learning so they can contribute. Whether they're going to contribute to us or not, we hope they do, and sometimes they go somewhere else. And then we have the retention things, the thing that create loyalty that allows people. We have a thing called resume. Every six months, our employees need to sit through and, and show us what they've accomplished that have made them a better human, a better performer, a, better, a person who can go get another job somewhere else. And then we'll figure out ways to keep those people. But if we continually do that, and it's the same thing with it, with your um, customers. Recruit great, great customers. Have an avatar for what your customers are. Orient them to the way in which go, doing business works well for you. I watch it happen at Cooperstown. You do all of this. You may not call it what I call it, right? Mm -hmm. But you do this. The only thing I do is I apply organizational thought to a lot of what people are doing, which is where this question started, which is how did I design around decision making, is I went out and just studied who, who the people who I believe were the greatest decision makers I had ever seen. People who accomplished a great deal. What did they do? They evaluated, they didn't justify, right? When they were doing things, they looked, they discussed things with people to, to really understand it. They determined what the consequences and what the, and what the resources they would need is. Then they made a decision, but before they did anything, they planned it. And once they plan it, then they implement it. And that's what I call the six steps to effective decision making, right? Mm -hmm. I just did that, right? And then I give helpful hints because if you have a process for decision making, decision making, evaluate, discuss, determine, decide, plan, implement, right after you implement, what do you do? Evaluate. Yeah. <laughs> discuss. And then so what you have to do is you're constantly in that in that mode. We do it every day, sometimes consciously, sometimes not consciously. Got in the car to drive down here. Mm -hmm. Did you have any traffic jams? Do you have any, any red lights? Yeah. Have anybody cut you off? I did. Every one of those things <laughs> is a new decision based on where you're going and what you're doing. What you try and do is, is since you knew where you started, knew where you were going, and knew the time frame you had, you were able to adjust to those things and be in control of the situation. Yeah. Um, sometimes not all that happens. I was coming back from Orange County two weeks ago. I couldn't get home in time because somebody landed an airplane on the five. 
That's an uncontrollable deal. So I, but I got a choice, right? I had a, I had a choice to be mad. I had a choice to say, well, it's a beautiful day. I'm going to go stop at the beach because I got nowhere to go anyway. <laughs> so I spend an afternoon at the beach and I enjoy it. But that's the choice we get to make. So in decision making, you are in control. What happens, happens. Mm-hmm. How you respond to it is how you choose to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Be clear, I'm not preaching because I get mad as hell at people when I'm driving, okay? So don't, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say. <laughs> we, have, we have to understand that. The, the question you had was, how do people make better decisions? They understand what it takes to make a decision. They decide to do these things, and they realize that decision-making is a skill. Mm-hmm. It's a skill. And unfortunately for most of us, we learned that skill from the ages of six to nine. Now, you're lucky. I know your dad, so I know he make, that makes a good decision. I know your mom. I know she makes good decisions. So you had, you had a step up on those. And as you go to make those choices about what you want to do next in life, what you have to look for is you had parental support. Now you're looking for expertise mm-hmm. and guidance from people who have been there before you. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, that's kind of like the way <clears throat> when you and I first met, that's kind of what I was kind of thinking about is like, who's the... Who's someone in my environment that's an expert that I can learn mm-hmm. a ton from? And that's definitely how our relationship has been, for sure. And me too. I get to learn lots of great things. Yeah. But that's just it, is that you you get the choice. You have a choice to be a lifelong learner. Uh-huh. And it's going to sound funny because in this interview, I'm doing most of the talking. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dalai Lama said, if you're talking, you already know mm-hmm. what's going to be said. But if you're listening, you actually have the opportunity to learn. Yeah. And what I would encourage people to do is, as I said, watch your TED Talks, watch your Gold Coast, watch your um, Mentor Box, find the ways in which you as an adult learn best mm-hmm. and do more of that. Yeah. Constantly look for learning opportunities. So you brought a couple of the, the books that you uh, that you wrote. What are some of the key learning things that you... Buy the book. No. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> What are some of like the key learning things that uh, that you feel most people should take away from that? Ultimately, um, I think that when people are looking for things, the universe provides what they're finding. And so if you're an entrepreneur and you're sitting in a situation where you're just frustrated with the growth of your company, the growth of yourself, and you're not sure what to do with your people, read this book (laughs) because it will help you. I have a bet with every entrepreneur I meet. I do it every single time. Any entrepreneur of substance, I say, here's a book, read the first two chapters. If it's not 95% accurate to your life, I will pay you $100 and you get to pick the percentage. I did this in a room with 100 people while you were in the room Mm -hmm. and people the next day were saying, nope, I'm nothing, right? They were reading the book, they're saying, I can't, I can't. No, I've never had anybody ask for $100. And it's not because I know, it's because I studied, I observed, I created, I looked at the behaviors of an entrepreneur, I looked at the impact it had on the organization, I looked at what I eventually called the four stages of growth, and I, and I named them that. And then I talked about the behaviors associated with that, and then what to do to change. And that's ultimately what it is, is that if you deal with your behaviors and your beliefs, you can change. Mm-hmm. If you don't deal with your own behaviors and your own beliefs, you can't change. It's about as simple as it is. And just remember, in every belief that you have that drives a behavior, the word lie exists. <laughs> so you've got to be really careful what you look at for your feedback mechanisms. And I know in one of the speeches that you heard me do, I have this, all your behaviors drive a decision, right? And there's a decision, that's your D. And that decision leads to outcomes. And outcomes can either be positive or they can be negative. It's clear that if you just use that, you make if you have a positive outcome, you're going to make more decisions like that because you like it, right? Mm-hmm. But if they're negative, you pretty much stop because you're, you're, you're really smart. You don't want to do something that doesn't work. Unfortunately for us is that every opportunity creates a consequence. So you have to look at your feedback ne- mechanism farther down, especially if you're in a leadership position in an organization. If you're in a leadership position in an organization, you're constantly solving the problems for all the people in the organization. The negative consequences, they never have to solve a problem, so they just come to you with all their problems. So eventually, you're stuck with solving every other person's problem. So you need to not solve the problem. You need to move that problem to the consequence saying, you know, you need to learn how to do that. So you have a positive outcome, which is your teaching organization, and the positive outcome is that the consequence is that they now learn to do things, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there's an unintended consequence to that too, right? Now we're extending the feedback, and that can be either positive or negative. 
different. And you've got to be able to look through these things and understand if these, if you have a positive outcome that has a negative consequence, a negative um, unintended consequence, and a ne negative opportunity, you probably don't want to do a lot of those. Unfortunately, it feels so good. We like to do it more. <laughs> yeah, it's like. I'm a hero. <laughs> and it destroys what you really want, which is to build a big organization or have lots of things. And lot, I mean, imagine, if you will, a parent who never allows their, their child to go from the crawling to the walking phase or from the walking to a riding a bike phase. Right? We would create just such a sad situation, right? Mm -hmm. So a parent's job, once, once a child goes from crawling to walking, is to create a safe environment to do that, right? Yeah. Guess what the entrepreneur's role is? To create a safe environment to allow those people to do it. Are they going to crash and burn? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and what you need to do is make it as a safe as crash and burn as big. You don't give them a $100 million budget right off the get-go. So, yeah, you just go ahead and do it. Unfortunately, entrepreneurs don't know the difference between delegate mm -hmm. and abdicate. Because when they abdicate and people don't do it right, guess what they get to do? Come back in and be a hero. Mm -hmm. So what we want to make sure we're doing is we're creating a feedback mechanism that allows people if you're a leader in an organization, to grow, to add on new responsibilities, and to create an organization where people want to make good decisions and they understand the parameters, the rules, and the ways in which they're going to go. We use the six R's. Mm -hmm. What is the role of the organization? What are the rules of the organization? What are the responsibilities of the organization? What are the relationships that the organization have? What results are we looking for? And what are the rewards for doing that? The organization has that, right? And then every department has that. What are the role? What's the role of marketing? What's the role of advertising? What are the rules? What are the responsibilities? What are the relationship to all the other departments? What results are we looking for? What are the rewards? And then we can break that down into every job in every department, to, so they so so you have this continuity and congruity right from the top. Everybody understands what their contribution is, mm -hmm. and what I wrote about in one of my books. It's a very old story. You know, you, you go to the quarry and you say to the first guy, "What are you doing?" And he says, chopping rocks. Great. He's right. That's what he's doing. So the next guy, what are you doing? He says, I'm making building stones. And you go to the third guy, what are you doing? I'm creating the tools to build the next Taj Mahal. Which guy do you want to hire? <laughs> okay, because it's the attitude. They're all doing the same job. Yeah. They're doing you know, pretty much the same job. And the guy who said the first thing wasn't right, it's just not the guy you want to invest in. Right. Or the woman. Sorry. So what do you want... Leading authority on women-owned business issues. <laughs> I have the document. I can prove it. <laughs> so what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to make the investments in people who want the investments to be made in them. You constantly want to help people grow. I talked before about people, time, and money. Time is a constant. We, we all know every de de definition of time, right? And when if somebody tells me that they don't have enough time, I just say you just didn't prioritize something. That's about it. Money, money's completely a byproduct. All the assets you have, everything you have in the company is completely the byproduct of what a person did. So if you're going to spend any time as a leader in an organization, what should you be spending your time on? People. Helping your people improve in every aspect of their life and their contributions to your business. But if they don't understand the role, the rules, the responsibility, the relationship, the results, and the rewards, it's harder. If they're not clear about how they've been recruited, how they've been oriented, how they're being trained, um, you know, what they have to do to be educated, and why we want to retain them, it's harder. But when you take these tools, right, and you bring them together, and you're consistently focused on, right, with my three rules: positive expectancy, brilliance, accomplishment. If you just focus on that all day long with the people around you, you'll be amazed at how spectacular they are. And that's what it's about, right? It, it's about helping other people attain spectacular things, right? Yeah. My dying place issue, that thing if you go in my office, and maybe you saw it when I was there, I had this little tombstone. What does it say on my tombstone? He helped others attain potential. They never knew, right? Never is tiny, new is big. They have, right? Because I believe intuitively people understand it. People are striving to look for ways in which to improve upon themselves. And what your job to do is just to provide that environment. Socrates said, my job isn't to teach, my job is to create an environment where people can learn. Mm -hmm. And that's really the role and the goal of every entrepreneur who can effect and affect business. And, and it's okay, those guys who do the socks, they say, for every 30 we sell, we're going to give to the homeless people because it's the number one deal. I love those people. I buy their socks. I give them away. I don't wear it. Because it's a way in which I can feel good about a contribution I can make. And we have to do those things as part of our 
commitment to ourselves and our obligation to the people who are working with. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important part of leadership in my sometimes humble opinion. <laughs> I, I, I really like what you said about how, because I felt like earlier on in my career, I felt like I had to solve every problem. I felt like that was, I had to do it. And I took the responsibility. But then as I started to grow and got more responsibilities, it's like, well, I can't keep solving this little, this other problem because it's not in the benefit. And I think being able to educate and make that environment for our team so they can solve that problem was really big for me. And it's, it's something I'm still working on. You know, I still continue to do that at the next level and next level and next level. But that's definitely something that, that I've experienced, just how you were saying that. The more problems that are solved in an organization, the bigger an organization is. The more problems you have to solve for the organization, the smaller the organization is. It's that simple. If you can get, if you can teach and train and educate people to be able to be problem solvers in every situation, it's. But they have to be trained. They have to understand what what's my role, what are my rules, what are my responsibilities, what's the relationship, you know, what are the results you're looking for, and what are the rewards, and they have to know that they can depend on people. They have to know that. When they're doing things, the resources are there to help them. Mm-hmm. You don't take a kid who can't swim and throw him in the deep end and say, go. Right. I mean, now, if they're four or five months old, you can actually do that because they pop up, they roll over, and you go, what the hell is that? <laughs> but they're usually, by the time they're about two or three and they don't know how to swim, they're going to just panic and die. So what your job is to do is to teach people. Right. And use whatever analogy works for you mm-hmm. so that you can constantly be helping a person at their level of needing help, mm. not your expectation of where they should be. I watch 50-year-olds hire 25-year-old, and they say, why can't they do this? Well, you, you, you have 25 years of experience they don't have. So what did you do to train them to understand the criticality score that you seem to think that that, that thing that they did has but they didn't know they were doing it wrong. Well, if they didn't know they were doing it wrong, why didn't they? And just, I'll, I'll focus very hard on, I believe leaders of organizations absolutely have to, must, are completely obligated to helping their people attain greatness all the time. In the early 90s, this is dating me, please don't call me old. <laughs> Inc. Magazine sponsored me to do a, a tour of cities throughout the United States on this book. Transitions. It was an entire day thing sponsored by KeyBank. And I talked to thousands of entrepreneurs. And in every in every time I talked to them, I'd say, how many people out there need better employees? They'd all raise their hands. Now, that's got to scare you right. as an entrepreneur in looking for better people because we have all the people that are there. So what are you going to do? Take from somebody else who already thinks they don't have good people? It becomes very difficult. And what I watched at the time was I watched corporate America cut training, cut training, cut training, to the point that I was so frustrated in the early 2000s, I wrote a book. It's called Creating Do-It-Yourself Customers. Why? Because if you can't train your employees to, to do things better, right, and the technology was changing, you better make sure that your, your customer, who's now going to be doing most of the work, is going to like you better. Now understand, in the early 2000s, and when this book was published in 2005, that was cutting edge. Southwest was about the only airline in the world that was having their customers do their own reservations online. Mm-hmm. But your banks were starting to bring out ATM machines, and you know, so you were able to do that. But we anticipated that in the future, if you don't, if you don't create a way for your customer to do all the work, you, utilizing your services and like you better, they're going to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So we wrote this book, we did really well, we're smart, we're geniuses, we're good looking, got it. And the technologies that change consistently allow us to do things dramatically different than we did before. Bigger, more, better, nicer is this thing that was really a catchphrase a long time ago for a chain of restaurants. Bigger, more, better, nicer. And what I took from that is if I want to keep employees, I'm going to, because employees, if I want to keep customers in place, it's really simple. They're going to have an expectation that it's going to be better. Mm-hmm. They're going to have an expectation that it's going to be faster. Right? Technology, you should collect technology better. Too. And in order for it to be cheaper, we're going to have to do it different than we did before. Technology figured that out. But in people-based businesses, we consistently have to invest in the people to make it better. 
to make the cost-benefit analysis improve. So as you're looking at the things you're choosing to do with yourself, with your employees, with your customers, with your vendors, the thing that you should always be investing is how do I create a higher level of loyalty? And loyalty then is how, how can we build something together versus not building it together? It's just, it's, it's not an easy answer. There's no like, here's my magic wand, voila. Mm -hmm. It's it's a constant look for improvement over the things that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This has been awesome. Is there anything else that you feel like the the people watching this, you really want them to, to grasp or any other? I mean, I always like the different stories you tell, but if there's any story or anything else. he calls else, me old. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was funny because like we were at a, we were at a uh, conference and we were we were sitting there and the the guy that was serving us came up and said he made a comment like he remembered your exact drink order and, and we were both impressed and then you started talking with him and i was amazed at the way you'd figured out this guy was a uh, he was a bellman in another hotel and you told the story about how you grew this um specific resort mm. and that was that was pretty incredible. Yeah, we we were engaged to take over a resort that had revenues of 38 million one year and lost almost $5 million. And it was a ski resort, ski and summer resort. It wasn't a ski and summer resort when we got there. It became a summer resort after we left because you have to, you have, to have more revenue in the summer if you want to be able to be there in the winter. And what we realized was as people would check in, they would ask the bellman, and where should I go to eat? And the bellman all told him to go to some of the restaurants. And we had 17 restaurants on property. And it was like, well, why do you tell him to go there? And they go, well, because I can afford to eat there. <laughs> so we did a survey and we brought in all the bellmen and we brought in all the employees. And we said, okay, the average person who stays here is making $175,000 a year. But for their first response is they should tip better. Okay? <laughs> and my response better was if they'll tip you better if you tell them to to stay on the resort, and I'll tip you if you do that too. <laughs> so like, if if we'll stop telling them to go to the local restaurant, or local Smith's, right, the grocery store, and, and they'll give you a egg carton, you can put all your food in there and you can hang it out the window in our five-star hotel, right? <laughs> so, so they can eat in their room for free, or for, and tell them to go to our steakhouse where the average ticket item is you know, $175 per person. I want them to go there. In one year, we went from the average guest state of about 800 to not, between eight and 900 dollars to the next year almost 1700 dollars. Now the problem in the ski resort is that if it doesn't snow, they don't show up. So we had the same revenue, okay, because we had so many less ski days, but we made almost four million dollars. Wow. Because we made other changes in the organization that, if you look through it, would just be a series of common sense. But at the time, they were revolutionary in that we were going to run a business that would be there for the guests to enjoy. We did a survey of the employees, and we actually got, how could we improve the mountain operations? That was one of our questions. And there was an incredibly high percentage that said, don't let the guests ski. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> It's accurate, but it's a fundamental problem if your advertising is come here because it's a ski resort. So how do we how do we combine those things? Mm -hmm. And we said, well, you know what? The reason they don't know how to do it is that they don't they don't know where to go. So we should have a series of guides up on the mountain to teach them where to go. I'm like, that's a good idea. So instead of just ski control, we had guides. And now what they were able to do it, and we gave impromptu lessons and we separated skiers from snowboarders, because that was a disaster in the in then. It's not as bad today, but it's just different. Just the you had to take the information you were given, <laughs> try not to yell at them for saying it, and then figure out what they really meant. What they really meant is, you know, these people are getting hurt. We're spending our ski patrol guys are having to take people down all the time because they keep trying to go to the harder, harder things. They all want to take the gondola, okay? So we took them up, up on the gondola and we had somebody there and we talked to them about it. And so, and then we would take them down on the gondola if they didn't pass a certain test. But we would bring them off and we'd give them a gift and give them a hot chocolate. And, you know, lots of greatness came out of don't let the guests on the mountain. <laughs> no. <laughs> or maybe in a different place, but you learn from those things. So when you're faced with these kinds of tremendous learning experiences and you have them over an extended period, you just, you learn to say, okay, 
if I'm smart enough to ask the right questions, I'm going to get really great answers. Mm -hmm. But if I immediately discount the, what the person was telling me, mm -hmm. you know, we shouldn't let the guests on the moon. Why? Because they get hurt. Huh? We should find a way for the guests to have a safer experience on the moon. Yeah, that's what we mean. Got it. <laughs> Agreed. Now let's all figure out how to do that. But if you just went off the first thing I said, you're like, no, I'm firing you. And you, weren't, and you were finding a person who cared about what happened to the guest, just didn't explain it exactly the way you wanted to hear it. Right. Going back to if you have more than one way, you can usually get your way. <laughs> That's just a practical example of, yeah, that, you know, Roy, you have all these pithy quotes, the best ad-lib line is one that is well rehearsed, but if you actually live them and actually learn from them and actually adapt to those things, you go, wow, mm -hmm. this works. Most of the people I work with are way smarter in lots of places than I am. I am constantly, every day, amazed at how brilliant people are. It's good. That's why I brought brilliance as number two, because all day long I'm surprised at how people solve and resolve problems. That's cool. Is there anything else you think that, um, any other key takeaways you think that people watching this need to hear or you would like them to hear? Um, choice. Decision making, it's yours. Yeah. You know, I think Anthony Robbins said it great. If you don't like your life, make new choices. Um, there's lots of incredible people who have lots of incredible information. Mm -hmm. um, I, usually, I usually start out a speech where I say, if I take one thing from one person, it's called plagiarism. But if I steal a lot of things from a lot of people, it's called research. <laughs> research your life, <laughs> steal from lots of people, and make it your own and figure out ways to to affect your own life, to make it better. And then each one help one, find other people who you could affect. Yeah. And that becomes a really important part of what we do. I mean, I, I want you to be a billionaire, right? Mm -hmm. I have people all the time say to me, how do I pay, how do I pay nothing in Texas? I don't exactly how you pay nothing in Texas. <laughs> don't make any money. <laughs> it's not what they mean, right? right. <laughs> but I say, I wanna, I wanna pay a million dollars a year in taxes at least. So why the hell do you want to do that? Because I want to do it as tax efficiently as possible. If, you, if I'm doing it tax efficiently and I'm making a million dollars and I pay a million dollars a year in taxes, I'm doing okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm doing okay in life. So it's not about what; it's about the perspective that you have. It's the guy sitting in the jail, jail cell who's only looking at the bars. Mm -hmm. There's a person who's seeing the through the bars and what they do. Look at your life differently than you're currently looking at it. And if you don't, then you're not going to get a miracle. If you're going to look at your life differently, you have the opportunity to get a miracle. And I love the name of your of your show. I like what you do. I like the people you bring on. I like the fact that every once in a while you actually listen to me. <laughs> but it becomes, you know, life is a series of choices. If you want a better life, make better choices. Skill in decision-making is critical to that. Mm -hmm. Having goals, having aspirations, involving people who can help you get there is critical. Yeah. So that's what I want people to get. They can make their own choices. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the Miracles for having me. podcast. Right. That was awesome. Uh, this is where miracles are expected, and I'm your host, Scotty Cooper. Thank you so much for watching.